This podcast is brought to you by Mae McCarthy, the author of a new book entitled The Gratitude Formula, a seven-step success system to create a life that you love. Please listen to podcast number 743, where Mae and Greg speak about gratitude in a new way using a practical system that you can put to use every day to achieve success in your relationships, career, finance, health, personal pursuits, spiritual growth, and virtually any other aspect of your life. Mae's method is built upon starting each day with a grateful heart, and the details of her seven-step practice for success are very powerful. Everyone is a success, but you can be more successful if you listen to and apply the practices and principles that May speaks about in this podcast and in her new book, The Gratitude Formula, a seven-step system for creating a life that you love. Please listen to podcast number 743 with author May McCarthy about her new book, The Gratitude Formula. You can learn more about May, retreats, workshops, videos, and consulting services by visiting www.maymccarthy.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And uh, David, as I do every time, I thank the listeners for their questions, uh, their thoughtful questions, I might say, when they're writing in and asking me questions. Uh, also, people phoning me up and saying, hey, how do I get in touch with that author? That's a great thing. Uh, today, we have a returning guest, and uh, it's David Emerald, and David has a new book out called Three Vital Questions, Transforming Workplace Drama. Good day to you, David. How are you doing? Doing uh, great, Greg. Uh, great to be back with you. Great to be back with you as well. And uh, we interviewed David before, and we'll put a link into the blog uh, for his best-selling book, The Power of Ted. Now, David, I'm going to let him know a little bit about you. He's a celebrated creator of Leadership Framework proven to powerfully boost teamwork and productivity. Since the release of David's best-selling book, The Power of Ted, thousands of people and organizations have achieved breakthroughs by applying his self-leadership techniques and attending his seminars worldwide. Uh, He works in close collaboration, David said, with his wife and business partner, Donna, and MMC have developed the framework that forms the basis of the engaging workplace. Uh, Fable, the three vital questions transforming workplace drama. He and Donna are co-founders of the Bainbridge Leadership Center. Well, David, I found the book to just be fascinating. And we were talking about Bob Anderson before the leadership circles. And you do travel in some great circles and have an amazing background. And people need to go uh, to his website which is threevitalquestions.com. Amazing website, very well done. There you'll find a library. You can reach David about his consulting. Uh, You can look at the trainings that he does on the Train the Trainer, and we'll put links to that as well, and look at the upcoming events. Um, You know, David, your precursor book that we did before, The Power of Ted, Mm -hmm. kind of leads up to this vital questions, and you know, you you speak about characters during this book. You use characters throughout. It's a story. Right. Um, you speak about the cost of drama in the workplace, though. And my questions for you are, we know there's cost, but you actually put a dollar amount to it in the book. And how do people, how do you help people navigate and reframe their questions to improve communications and reduce the drama in the workplace? Great question, uh, Greg. And, and, um, and first of all, I, I just want to acknowledge your uh, comment about 
uh, how blessed I am to uh, be uh, working and walking in the in the circles that includes uh, includes you, and uh, feel very blessed to be doing this work. And there really is huge cost to drama. A uh, couple of statistics that we um, that we refer to, and then I'll get to the question about uh, how we uh, feel that we can uh, transform drama. But a couple, one is that Gallup uh, did some research a few years ago, and they estimate that somewhere, uh, and I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I know it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $350 billion of lost productivity because of negative behavior uh, in organizations. They use the term negative behavior. That's uh, astronomical. That's, that's really that's just astronomical. It, and I don't think, I think it's so hidden that people don't, you know, figure out how to measure it. You know, it is, right. it's just one of those things that it's just, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? It is. Well, and here's a, here's a second measurement that to me makes it even more concrete. And um, this came from a Forbes article uh, again, a few years ago, but the, the estimate is that managers, leaders spend um, somewhere between 25 to 40% of their time dealing with drama, dealing with negative behavior. So whether it's issues between employees or between departments, et cetera. And one of our trainers pointed out to us, uh, when I give credit to her, that she said, you know, if you think about it, if you think about a the traditional 40-hour work week, which is um, a lot of us don't engage in anymore, uh, but if you just take the 40 hours, and if you look at 40% of 40 hours, that translates into two days a week that a manager is dealing with various forms of drama in the workplace. So we really believe that, that, that there will always be some level of drama, some level of disagreement, um, uh, uh, unproductive conflict, et cetera. But if we could cut that in half, um, what that would, the energy that that would free up to serve customers and clients, to serve other stakeholders, to make the workplace, um, you know, more fulfilling uh, as well as more effective. Uh, that's really what, what we're after in doing this work. Yeah, and you do it so well. I mean, I, I for my listeners, we'll have a link to the YouTube videos where David's speaking about this. Now, you state in the book that you had one pivotal learning experience that sparked the inquiry that kind of set the stage for three vital questions. Can you tell our listeners about the workshop you attended and the statistics about change initiatives? Because change initiatives, yes. people are running after all the time, but it's unbelievable how many of those change in initiatives actually fail. That's right. Um, yes. I was attending a, uh, a workshop put on by um, the, the uh, leadership architect folks. And one of the um, presenters was David Ulrich, uh, who is still a professor at the University of Michigan's, uh, I think it's the Ross Business School. And he had, um, at that time, had just completed, as a good academic, a study of studies of the effectiveness, the, the rate of effectiveness of change efforts in organizations. And what he reported um, really stopped me in my tracks. What he said was that somewhere on the order of 80, 80%, 80 to 85% of change efforts failed to produce their intended results. I've since seen some other um, research, and the best I've seen 
it's a 65% failure rate. Now, there's a range of failure. It could be anywhere from, you know, crash and burn to uh, it taking longer than had been planned, not having the returns that had been planned, et cetera. So there is a range of failure. Uh, but that really was a, was a pivotal um, time for me because just because of the leadership and organization development work that I have done and was doing at the time uh, caused me to really step back and say, what is it that contributes to that poor success rate? And about six months later, I came across an early article by Peter Senge, who went on to write um, uh, The Fifth Discipline. And in that book was a reference to how you can look at any organization. And I'll, I'll, I'll make this quick, but I, it's an important um, uh, aha for me, is that um, that you can look at any organization and there are three dimensions of work. He just called it dimensions A, B, and C. The A dimension is doing the work. It's whether it's selling products or providing services. The B dimension, which is really the realm of management, it are that is made up of the work of the systems, processes, and structures by which we get the A dimension of work um, completed. But he said that there is a third dimension of work that often doesn't get attention, which he just called the C dimension of work, and that is thinking about how we think, thinking about how we relate, and thinking about how we take action. And that it's the also the realm of leadership in, in the sense of what are the assumptions that we make about how we organize to get the work done. And the best example I can uh, quickly use to illustrate the impact that that C dimension of work can have, uh, I'll, go, I'll draw from the work of Douglas McGregor uh, from MIT, uh, who put forward um, simple um, contrasting management assumptions. He just called it um, theory X, theory Y. And the theory X set of assumptions is that people are basically lazy, that they go to work just to get the paycheck, that they'll do the, the uh, least amount of work necessary to get by. And if you think about it, if that's the assumption, the C dimension assumption, then we're gonna have at the B dimension systems and processes that are micromanaging, that are watching over people, kind of policing. Theory Y, on the other hand, he said, is a theory that says people want to make a difference, they want to have meaningful work, they want to uh, contribute their their thinking, et cetera. And if that's the C dimension of work, we're going to have a much different set of systems and processes and structures that really tap into the, the creativity and the energy that people bring to getting that A dimension of work done. So the aha for me was that most change efforts are focused purely at the B dimension, meaning you know, let's restructure, um, you know, let's uh, do process engineering, and there's a place for that. I'm not putting that down, but if we engage in those change uh, mechanisms without stepping back and doing the work of looking at how we're thinking, really getting clear about how we're relating to one another um, and planning for action, we just run the risk of um, two, two terrible images. One is just rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, or as a colleague of yeah. mine once said, all we're doing is pushing soap around the tub. Yeah, uh, we're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not well, making really... Uh, so I realize that was a long answer, but um, that no, really an was an absolutely pivotal moment. Yeah, and it, and it was. Those three dimensions are really important <laughs> for our listeners to know. And, you know, getting into your vital questions, you start off 
the first vital question with a great story. And this book is framed around Lucas and mm-hmm. his hard working. And we'll let the listeners know just a tad bit about that. But you can, if you could tell the listeners what the first vital question is and the story that you're telling about Lucas, because it's this hardworking guy, it's kind of setting an example, not spending much time at home. Um, but the first vital question, and then the other two questions are just as relevant and important, but uh, let's start there. Sure. Well, and what I would say is that the three vital questions are all C-dimension work questions. So the first vital question is, where are you putting your focus? And uh, are you focusing on problems or are you focusing on outcomes? And that's really critical because the, the, the human operating system that focuses on problems the way it works is that we that a problem occurs and engages uh, an interstate or an emotional response of some form of anxiety, and then we react to that anxiety. Whereas if we're focusing on outcomes, and if we care about those outcomes, it's going to tap an interstate of passion, and it's going to give us the, the energy to take whatever the next, what we call baby steps, or the creative uh, energy to move toward and bring to fruition the outcomes that we want to produce. Um, so that, that's the basis of that first vital question. So I appreciate you talking about the story. So Lucas is, although we don't give him an age, uh, in, in my mind's eye as, as a writer, he's a, a millennial, got a couple uh, uh, kids. His wife um, also works at a, a daycare center. And he's in a, a job that he doesn't really like. He's um, in one of those jobs where he has responsibility but no authority and what i mean by that is he he's a team leader of a group of data analysts uh, in a large financial services institution and um, he is working late one night and um, a new janitor uh, appears um, because he's working late and that janitor (laughs) happens to be named ted uh, and is the uh, uh, embodiment if you will of the, the empowerment dynamic and uh, over the course of several months, uh, Ted becomes uh, a, a bit of a, not a bit of, becomes a teacher to him. Uh, and one of the first things that, that he shares with him is this first vital question. And it really um, shifts the way that Lucas begins to look at his work and, frankly, look at his life. And, um, uh, and one of the things that is part of the book as the book unfolds is how he takes um, this way of thinking uh, back home in his relationship with Sarah, his wife, and and his two young kids. Yeah, and it's really a uh, it's a great story as you go through it, but as Thank it you. kind of frames itself around, um, it, you have a great diagram in the book on page twenty seven, which you refer to as the F I S B E. Mm-hmm. Um, what does what does FISBE stand for, and how can we alter our own mindsets? I thought that this would be a great thing to impart on the listeners. Sure, I appreciate that. Well, FISBE is kind of the is the organizing uh, model of what we refer to, and actually Bob Anderson refers to as the human operating system. And so FISBE um, is an acronym that stands for focus um, and uh, the, the IS stands for interstate, and then the BE stands for behavior. 
So what happens is that what we focus on engages some sort of uh, interstate, some emotional response, which then drives our behavior. Um, and that becomes kind of the, the framing of the, the human operating system, which then that is the frame that the problem orientation hangs on again very quickly where we focus on problems, engages some level of anxiety that drives reactive behavior. Um, and if we can upgrade our operating system from that problem-focused way of being to an outcome orientation where our focus is on outcomes that we care about, which then taps that inner state of passion, and that passion then gives us the energy for uh, creating uh, and bringing to fruition the outcome that we want to create uh, by taking the necessary baby steps to uh, to accomplish that. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, it's it's a great acronym. It's, there's a great little chart in the book, and I want to encourage all my listeners, when you get the book, go there, take a look at it. It's got a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of diagrams, but you've got diagrams in the book that really mm-hmm. do help the reader understand this material and how to use it. Now, we were talking before we got on the show, Bob Anderson um, with the Leadership Circles has been on the show before, and you discuss the two uh, orientations of the leadership circle in the book. And mm-hmm. I, and I really do believe that, you know, that is landmark wo- work that, uh, Bob Anderson has done. Discuss with our listeners about the problem orientation and the outcome orientation, if you would, because those are the two perspectives. Sure. And, and I would, uh, add that, uh, as, as we talked before we got on the show, Greg, that I've known Bob, Bob's been a, a close colleague and friend and, and, um, you know, gave me permission, uh, to, to really use the orientations, which, uh, is his original work, especially the, the framing of, of, uh, I came up with the acronym of, Fr- of FISB, but he's the one that, uh, really laid out the, the two orientations and in the leadership circle, what I call problem orientations refer to as the reactive orientation, and the outcome orientation is referred to as the creative orientation. And so in the problem orientation, um, because we focus on problems and we, and, we uh, and that engages anxiety, the kinds of reactive behaviors that we uh, typically engage in, and, I, and, and this orientation really is the default orientation of, of uh, humankind, is that because of the anxiety, we either engage in fight, flight, or freeze behavior. Uh, We've added a fourth, which is to appease, to go along, to get along. So we either aggress against the, the, uh, the, the issue or the problem, or we try to get away from it, or we just hope we freeze and hope it will go away. And, um, and without going, I could spend the rest of our conversation going uh, more deeply into this, and again, a lot of credit to Bob for this. But one of the things that we've come to realize is that not only is the the problem orientation not a problem-solving orientation, it's merely a problem-reacting orientation because what really drives that operating system is anxiety. And if we do things that reduces our anxiety, we lose energy for action. So, So as a colleague of ours pointed out that 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 orientation actually is an anxiety management system uh, and is not related to really solving problems. The, what, what we do as we upgrade our operating system to consciously focusing on outcomes, 
we bring really good problem-solving methodologies in service to the outcomes that we want to create. Um, so very different sets of behaviors, very different experience. That's not to say that the outcome orientation is all goodness and light. It can be very difficult work um, and uh, have all kinds of challenges, but our relationship with our experience is so fundamentally different. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, there's a perspective too I have that just kind of flipped in my mind intuitively. You know, when you're focused on outcomes, you're staying in the moment. Yes. And when you're focused on problems, you're constantly living in the past. You're, you're looking at stuff that happened, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it really does to get that breakthrough require that you stay in this moment, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, whether you meditate or not, right. or whatever mm -hmm. you do, mm -hmm. I think it's very important that to see a problem from a new perspective, see anything from a new perspective, you need to stay in the moment. And you, um, you, you have the second vital question is how are you relating? And right. you speak, if you'd speak with our listeners about the second question, as it relates to the drama triangle, that mm -hmm. you refer to in the book as well, because the drama triangle is really a key part of uh, your program as well. Absolutely. Well, and I want to connect uh, the second vital question to the first vital question in that, uh, so you're right, the second vital question is how are you relating? And kind of the sub question there is how are you relating to others? How are you relating to your experience? And frankly, how are you relating to yourself? And are you relating in ways that produce or perpetuate drama, or are you relating in ways that empower others and yourself to be more resourceful, more resilient, more innovative? And, and the, the connection to the first vital question is that if, you're operate, if the operating system is problem-focused, reactive in nature, the, that sets the conditions for a set of relationship roles and dynamics that we call the dreaded drama triangle. It actually comes from the work of Dr. Stephen Cartman and uh, uh, his identification of the drama triangle, uh, which is made up of uh, the roles of victim. Victim is kind of the central role in the, the drama triangle. And that in order to be a victim, one must have a persecutor, which is the second role. And the persecutor certainly could be a person but it also could be a condition. It could be a health condition. It could be a situation like a, like a natural disaster. Um, and uh, once the dynamic it sets up, gets set up between the victim and the persecutor, the, the third role is the role of rescuer. And we refer to the rescuer as the, the pain reliever. And the, uh, the rescuer certainly could be a person, but the rescuer also could be something like an addiction or anything that helps the, um, the victim kind of numb out from their sense of powerlessness or, or hopelessness. And then one of the other things I, I quickly need to say about the rescuer role is that rescuers are uh, very often well-intentioned, and yet the shadow side of rescuing someone uh, as a victim, uh, unless, I mean, it's appropriate if there's a danger and, and, um, uh, and the, 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 the victim... Uh, you know, could die or could really be harmed. But usually what happens is the rescuer uh, intervenes, sometimes not even being asked by the, by the victim to intervene. And what they are doing is actually reinforcing the powerlessness of the victim. Um, 
So there is a shadow side to that rescuer role. But again, the, the drama triangle of victim, persecutor, rescuer is the set of relationship roles and dynamics that really live and breathe in that, uh, that problem-focused orientation. Well, and, and, and wouldn't you say that we've all played those different roles at one Absolutely. time? But the key, the key is our awareness of what role we're in so that we can transmute that, right? Exactly. Um, I think what happens is we get drugged down into the role. We don't even realize we're playing it until somebody brings it to our attention. We right. have a new mind state that created awareness as a result of that. And that brings me to uh, your third vital question is uh, what action are we taking? So if you'd speak with our listeners about how dynamic tension plays a role in shifting this perspective. Great. So what I want to do, Greg, is um, take your question, if, if you'll uh, permit me, and I'm going to spend just a cup, uh, another moment in the second vital question so I can really take it into the third vital question. Sure, Be- sure. Because um, if we upgrade our operating system and we begin to really uh, consciously uh, stay present to the outcomes that we want to create, first vital question, that kind of uh, mindset creates the conditions for the antidote to the, to the DDT, which is the empowerment dynamic, or what we call TED. And so uh, in that triangle, uh, which is, again, the, the antidote to the DDT, rather than being uh, a victim to problems, we, the central role is the role of creator. And as a creator, we can envision uh, the outcomes that we want to create. And we realize that we are at choice as to how we respond to what's going on in our lives. And so the creator is the antidote to the role of victim. The antidote to the role of persecutor is the role of challenger. And challengers are those people or situations in our lives that call forth learning and growth and may not be pleasant learning and growth, but calls forth learning and growth. And then the antidote to the role of rescuer, who's trying to be helpful, um, in the empowerment dynamic, the antidote role is the role of coach. And this does not have to be a professional coach, but a coach supports a creator by uh, asking questions, by helping them get clearer about what they want to create, um, uh, the, the situations they're facing, et cetera. And I'm going to take the coach role then. So Ted is the, is the antidote uh, and a different way of relating that comes out of that outcome orientation. But let me use the coach role then to now answer the third vital question, which okay. is what actions are you taking? Mm-hmm. And the, the model there that, uh, that you just referred to is dynamic tension. It's actually our iteration of uh, work done by uh, Robert Fritz, who called it structural tension. But there's really three major components to um, this action planning, uh, action taking model. And the the first step is to really focus on what's the outcome? What is it that we want to create? And a great question that comes from Robert Fritz is being able to answer the question, if we had what we wanted, how would we know it? So you always start with a focus on the outcome. The second uh, step is that you have to tell the truth about what's the current reality What is our current reality in relation to what we want to create? And that's the tension. It's the tension between what we want and what we currently have. And as we, uh, as a coach is helping 
uh, a person that says may ask questions about well, you know what's going on in current reality that supports what you want to create and what's going on in current reality that's inhibiting or getting in the way of what you want to create. And that's where um, a good coach will help uh, a creator identify what are the problems that need to be solved in service to that outcome. And then the way that we really utilize this tension is we, if we've told the truth about current reality, we then um, look at what we call baby steps. What's the next baby step? What's the next um, small thing I can do to begin to move from current reality toward the vision. So it could be something as simple as I need to have that conversation with that person or I need to uh, go gather this data, et cetera. And, and what happens is that over time, as we take baby steps, one of three things happens every time we take a baby step. Uh, uh, one possibility is it's forward progress. We take the step and uh, moved in the direction that we were hoping for. The second thing that could happen is we take a baby step and it's a mistake and a step back. Um, and when that happens, um, we can uh, pause and say, okay, what, can, what does that tell us about how we might move forward? What do we learn from that? And the third possibility, Greg, is you never know when a baby step is going to be a quantum leap or a breakthrough that would not have happened had you not taken that step. Uh, well, and that's, so we call it the three-step the, the three uh, dance. It's what do you want, what do you got, what's next? Well, and all of those steps are so important. And as you said, this, some of those baby steps could turn into a huge transformation for somebody or completely in the workplace. And that kind of leads me to, because really what you're doing here with the three vital questions and transforming workplace drama is you're really creating strategies for what I would call a more mindful work environment. Absolutely, um, yes. And, you know, whatever those strategies are that's being articulated through these questions and transforming this drama, if you look at the $350 billion you quoted us, and you can have even just a minor impact on this by creating more mindful workplace or mm -hmm. by, you know, asking these questions, which then are supposed to alter your current mind state or shift it, um, mm -hmm. you're, doing, you're doing your work. Um, what final advice would you like to leave our listeners regarding transforming the workplace into a more efficient organization and I would say with more heartfelt communications, I would say dynamic, but really more mm -hmm. heartfelt mm -hmm. communications? Absolutely. Well, as we make, as we upgrade our operating system, final question one, to that outcome orientation, um, and we develop our capacity as uh, co-creators, as challengers to one another from a, to, to spark learning and that we support one another um, from a, that, the coach role, that brings a lot more um, heart. It brings a lot more creative energy. It really makes the, the, the work relationships more fulfilling. By the way, it also can make our personal relationships much more fulfilling to be relating uh, in those ways with one another. And I would remind listeners that as human beings, we're all going to go reactive from time to time. And so the way that we can transform uh, or at least reduce the amount of drama in the, organ in the organizations and in our lives is to, um, is to be aware when we find ourselves in the drama 
the, that there are ways to what we call make shifts happen and the shift from um, a DDT uh, way of relating to uh, the empowerment dynamic and uh, those antidote roles. But to, to, to us, the, uh, the measure of progress, if you will, is do I catch myself sooner and do I make a conscious uh, empowered choice quicker and more effectively? And so it, this is lifelong work. It really is a baby step at a time. And we are absolutely convinced that we can drastically reduce the amount of time that is spent in organizations in negative uh, situations, drama. Uh, and, and actually, in the empowerment dynamic, we can have disagreements and we can have uh, conflict that is healthy and is uh, uh, really useful for creating outcomes, which is very different than the kind of uh, negative conflict and unproductive conflict we engage in when we're in the, the, drama, uh, the, the drama triangle. Well, David, you've given our listeners a lot to think about. And the book actually is a really quick read. It's a small little book. I'm going to encourage my listeners to definitely go out and get it. We're going to have a link to Amazon to the book. You can also get the book by just going to the website. It's threevitalquestions.com. Um, there, as I mentioned before, you can learn about events, courses and training, his library, mm -hmm. his consulting and really all about David and what he's doing to help transform the workplace. Um, David, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, spending some time talking about your new book, Three Vital Questions, uh, Transforming Workplace Drama. And I really, you know, just highly encourage people as well. We'll put a link to the video library. So at YouTube, David has a channel called Three mm -hmm. Vital Questions. Um, there are quite a few subscribers up there. There are many videos, um, especially about what we've been talking about, um, that are even shorter than this interview, uh, that he can, you know, that will relate to it and you'll get an idea of the work. So we'll have links to all of those, uh, including links to the website. David, pleasure having you on. Thanks for spending the time with us today. And Greg, we uh, could talk for another hour, but it's been a real pleasure. You're quite welcome. You have a wonderful one. Namaste. Namaste. Namaste.